1: Thank <phone> you. <rings> Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster from the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And
0: I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster from the firm Echelon Insights.
1: And each week, we're going to bring you all the polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. But first, we want to say thank you, everybody. Good job. We did it. So thanks to all the folks who have done their microassignments, and those, that was tweeting out recommendations to the show or submitting it to uh earbud.fm and NPR, um, writing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, all that engagement really made a difference. So Pocket Cast, one of the big apps, they featured us on their home screen. We were super excited. And then that went away that we were in the number two spot. And which was okay because the number one spot was now is now serial, the mega hit <laughs> that like billions and zillions of people are now downloading. And we're right next to it. So hello, new serial <laughs> listeners.
0: <laughs> hello, hello. Yes, this was a, it was a fun morning. I got an email from Margie who was like, Oh, take a look at this and it was just a screenshot of the pocket cast home screen. It was like, Oh.
1: Well, this is lovely. <laughs> Hello. So, <laughs> so we're really excited to have you guys and hope you stick around. And so in honor of us being a slightly less fringy media property, I'm going to have a surprise for Kristen. So it's going to be a little surprise for Kristen at the end of the show, but you have to wait all the way to the end of the show. I'm not going to bore everyone with the surprise at the top of the show. We'll get right to the actual meat of the show. But if you stick around to the end, you'll see the hear about the small surprise.
0: So this week's Top Lines. um, We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the 2016 race. The latest polls show that different Republican contenders stack up differently against Hillary Clinton. Who's up? Who's down? And how are things looking in Iowa? We've got boatloads of polls to dig through. Then we'll take a look at how things like Donald Trump's statements on Islam and Muslim immigrants um, stand up when we take a look at the polls. We'll also talk about uh, someone who infiltrated a focus group to figure out just what Trump fans are. Are thinking. Uh, finally, we'll talk a little bit about millennials, uh, as always, and also about what people plan to do for their Christmas presents. But first of all, I want to jump into what I believe is the most important polling topic of this week, and it is not 2016; it is Star Wars. So the new Star Wars. Margie's like kind of rolling her eyes at me already. I'm Margie. I am so excited for this.
1: No, I'm excited about. We had a Star Wars party <laughs> last night. For everybody who's you know old enough to watch Star Wars, which was not Beckett, was not my son, so I was in like the four-year-old, four-year-old and baby room. I was the monitor, of the four-year-old in the baby room, so I didn't watch the old Star Wars. But we are geared up in our house to watch Star Wars.
0: Well, the, uh, this polling data is a little old. Normally, we like to cite either very fresh data or really old data. This does not fall in either category. This is a Survey Monkey study from summer of 2014, but it was done in sort of the lead up, the year leading up to this big event. And it was trying to get public opinion on the various Star Wars characters. Uh, Now, I have a confession to make. My first Star Wars movie I ever saw was Phantom Menace, which has been seen by 80% of people who say they've seen a Star Wars film. Mm. Where I differ from a lot of people is that I initially loved that movie, Mm. which most Star Wars fans will tell you that it was not good. In fact, according to this SurveyMonkey study, um, 48% of people who say they have seen a Star Wars movie, or pardon me, 46% put it in the bottom third of all of the movies in the trilogy. Only 16% put it in the top third. Mm. So nobody really likes Phantom Menace. And part of the reason I liked Phantom Menace is I liked the character of Queen Amidala, um because she was 14 and wore red dresses and ran a planet and at the time I was roughly 14 and wanted to wear red dresses and run a planet so she <laughs> appealed to me her fave unfaves not great you're
1: almost there <laughs> <laughs> A older, you have a red dress a uh,
0: little older than that a little older than that um but so uh it, it, within this poll they did a fave unfave like you would do for a political candidate but of all the star wars characters um queen Amidala's fave unfave is 43% favorable 25% neutral 11% unfavorable 20% unfamiliar so she's not it's not great those but those aren't terrible numbers those are frankly numbers that a lot of political candidates might actually love to have. right? Uh, but the best fave on go to Luke Skywalker at 93% favorable, Han Solo at 92% favorable, Princess Leia at 91, and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda also coming in at 91% favorable. Who are the 2% of people that are unfavorable to R2-D2, by the way? <laughs> People, You always get 2% of people in any poll that answer something weird. Trolls. And last but not least, they asked the question, who shot first, Han or Greedo? 39% of people say Han, 24% say Greedo, and 37% of people who say they've seen a Star Wars movie said, I don't understand this question.
1: Yeah, that was actually the question for our like office video that we, <laughs> we had in our holiday party and I was like because I would have been in that third category like I've seen it not sure I totally even remember what you're talking about and I was glad I'm now even I shouldn't even be announcing this now I was glad I was not part of that video because I was like oh I don't know how I would have been one of the answers everyone would have laughed at <laughs> well, like how does she not know you <laughs> and- <laughs> are the 37 percent. you are the 37
0: <laughs> all right well let's talk some 2016
1: so you know it, it, we're recording this on Monday and there's a Republican debate tomorrow and it means there's a zillion polls coming out uh, and every time I, I walk by a television here too
0: many polls
1: It's too, is many, too many, polls. many polls I mean every time I walk by there's a there's a new poll but they basically say you know there's basically three or four different buckets that these polls can go into one is Trump is up he's just crushing and dominating everything that's going on there's a new mammoth poll that came out today that shows him with a new high of 41% in a national poll last week was the last new high at 36%. Um, I think it was, I don't know if it was a Fox News poll or another poll in New Hampshire that shows him tied with Cruz. I mean, there's a lot of polls that show him very strong. And then There are lots of other polls that show Cruz doing incredibly well. Cruz is up in Iowa. Cruz is up in Iowa in the latest Ann Seltzer poll. Ann Seltzer called the Oracle of Iowa. She's been on the show before. Her poll shows Cruz is up. I mean, it's pretty clear that right now, at least headed into this debate, that Top tier: Cruz and Trump for sure, and everyone else is either in a state of freefall or stagnation. Right?
0: A few months ago, when we were looking at the polls, the polls showed a clear top tier, but that top tier has really—that old top tier has totally fallen apart. It included Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, and Scott Walker. One's not in the race anymore, and one has spent tens of millions of dollars and is still basically in the single digits every time you ask. So, I mean, this race we now have a new top tier that is certainly. Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, and then depending on what state you're in, Ben Carson's numbers have fallen a lot. I think that's the One of the biggest stories we've talked about it on the show before, but these polls really confirm that the Carson fade is real and big. Um, And then also, you know, Rubio has been hanging out in there, but Rubio's not in he's not leading in any of these early states. And I'm not even sure that he's like a solid, solid second. Um, I mean, I think he he hasn't fallen, but he hasn't fallen. He's still gaining. He's like picking up bits and pieces here and there. The big flux is, you know, when Trump loses support, it goes to Carson and then Carson loses support. And it goes to Cruz. And then, so in the big debate, the question is how will Cruz and Trump? handle one another, since they, at least in Iowa, where everybody's really focused
1: right now, are kind of
0: duking it out for that top spot.
1: Right. And actually, another piece of this, too, we haven't really seen move that much is Chris Christie, who got an endorsement from the New Hampshire papers. Can he move up and maybe take some of the space that Jeb Bush had or that Rand Paul's had or some of these other candidates have had but haven't been able to really build on? There's
0: a belief that there's going to be some kind of establishment candidate that gets the people coalesce around, that you'll have Trump who the republican establishment can't stand. You have Cruz who is you can barely consider him an establishment candidate. There are people who are, you know, card-carrying establishment republicans that would lose their mind if he was the nominee. But Cruz's voters if you look at who votes for whom, Cruz voters look like typical high propensity republican primary voters. Mm-hmm. They're Tea Party folks, they're evangelical folks, they're folks that are very engaged. And so you see when you have the Ann Selzer poll which she really uses sort of a tighter frame for who she considers to be a likely caucus goer, shows Cruz doing very well. The broader the net is, the less stringent you are about who is or is not a caucus goer, uh, the better Trump does. Right. And that's because Trump's support does not come from a traditional high propensity Republican constituency. It comes from. Slightly lower propensity, slightly lower educated people who like to watch TV a lot. I'm not saying that as like an insult to them. I'm saying like these are the demographics right. that define people who are likely to be Trump voters. And so the question is when you have one of these tight screening polls like the Selzer one, which her track record is phenomenal. And Trump came out and like attacked her in her poll saying like, oh, the Bloomberg's, the Des Moines Register poll. I don't like the Des Moines Register. This is like one of the worst polls ever. No. <laughs> of all the things Trump has said that are untrue, this is the, one of the most untrue. <laughs> There that's there's like the gold standard poll of Iowa. I
1: mean, every week Trump has a new bit of analysis about polling that you could almost have a little mini show that's just analyzing his Trump on polls, Trump on polls. Oh, only. Oh, <laughs> my gosh.
0: Um, but but there is a chance that Trump will reshape the electorate, that people will turn out to vote in the Iowa caucuses who have never shown up in an Iowa caucus before and under normal circumstances, like couldn't have cared less between Romney and Rick Santorum. And so they didn't show up. But like Trump is tapping into something and so they're going to get out in the freezing cold February 1st and go do it. If that's the case, then maybe these polls with casting the broader net that show Trump doing better are the right ones. Right. We don't really know.
1: And he, you know, whatever Trump's strengths and weaknesses as a candidate, he doesn't quite have the infrastructure on the ground that some of these other candidates have been building for a long time. Um, but you're right. If he expands the electorate because people get excited, that could really benefit him. There was a Boston Globe piece. uh I think over the weekend or this morning, about if just following one woman's story a woman who was completely from Manchester, completely detached from politics, didn't care about politics, is now really excited about Trump. And what can we learn from stories like that? So we will see. But here's one you know, there's a, a couple of interesting tidbits of news. This is sort of the other bucket of polling that came out in the last day or 24 hours is how people think of the election as they're following it. We have a debate tomorrow night. The debates have all, on the Democratic side, too, been getting record viewership and are people finding them interesting? So there's some polling out from Pew that people find uh, the 2016 campaign interesting by two to one. Basically, two-thirds of voters say the presidential campaign is interesting, but they also feel by the similar margins that it's too negative, too long. And also they're more divided, I guess, but still basically 50-50 between non-informative and informative. So there are people who find the presidential campaign interesting, but also – Informative at the same time.
0: I don't blame them. I think the other thing that was a funny number that came out of of Pew was this question about are the debates fun to watch? And the the crosstabs on this are amazing. So they asked um, of those who say they have watched at least a presidential debate, did you find them fun to watch or not? 51% said yes, 46% said no. The most likely age group to think that these are fun to watch. Were younger voters, 18 to 29 year olds, 59 percent who said they'd watched a presidential debate found it fun to watch. And it declines as you get older all the way down to the 65 and up folks. Only 47 percent think it's fun to watch. I wonder if that's like selection bias a little bit in that if you are under the age of 30 and you are watching a presidential debate, you like you're it. probably a junkie yeah. a little bit. Whereas if you're 65 and up and you're watching a presidential debate, it's just, maybe it's just what you do. Maybe it's just like a thing that you've always done your whole life and what you is feel thing obligated on the, to do it as your civic duty to be right. informed about the candidates, whereas... So I I wonder if that's a part of it, too.
1: Yeah, we don't know. But it, it yeah, <laughs> surely you're not watching it if you think it's boring, perhaps, but maybe, maybe some other folks. Um, so regardless of whether folks are finding it engaging or which candidates are trying to make their way to the top tier, one of the issues that's for sure going to be part of the debate tomorrow night is Trump's. Ban his uh, policy announcement that he wants to ban immigration from of all Muslims. Um, there have been quite a few polls about this in the last week since it's come out. A lot of coverage about the relationship, if there is one, if we can if we can describe it as such between uh, between uh, Trump's policy and support for him. And the Huffington Post has an interesting roundup of all the various polls that have asked us in the last week, including one done here uh, at Purple Strategies in conjunction with Bloomberg Politics. And I I think what's interesting here is how the role of question wording. I mean, that really plays a role. Not that one question wording is right or wrong, but that it really – the different types of questions, um, question wording may really have different cues for folks. For example, the use of the word temporary. When Trump initially made the announcement, he didn't say temporary and he didn't say he didn't specify what, you know, any kind of subgroup of, you know, whether it includes all citizen Muslims who are American citizens. It wasn't clear. All of them. Just the ban. That's it. Kind of a beginning and end, full stop. Um, the next day he clarified a little bit. So question wording that integrates some of those clarifications have different responses than question wordings that don't. Question wordings that mention Trump by name, that's his policy versus detaching it from Trump, have different kinds of responses. And again, I don't think there's one right or wrong way to ask it. I think it's interesting to look at the realm of the range of answers. Another
0: thing that's a difference here, and I'm not 100% sure what the methodology was for the CBS poll or for the Bloomberg one. Were those telephone polls? Were those? like live interviewer The reason I ask is that I know the NBC Wall Street Journal would be and I know that YouGov wouldn't be. And so it's fascinating, the YouGov poll. So YouGov provides online surveys that are really high quality. And their question showed 45 percent of Americans saying that they agree that there should be a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. Um, So one, it could be the question wording that makes the YouGov the most favorable. It also could be the fact that you're not talking to a person, that you're online. And so you can just click like, yeah, I'd like to keep Muslims out of the United States and and that you're not you don't have to confess it to another person. You're just saying it to a checkbox on the internet. And I wonder when you have and we've talked many times before about if you have these kind of sensitive questions where you're asking people to confess a behavior or belief that is considered sort of socially unacceptable or undesirable or something that gets you criticized. Are you more honest? Online are you more or or is it more accurate when you do live interview?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Bloomberg purple poll was online. So I but there you have a different wording because there you have Trump's name. Trump's name. So when you look at the support among all Americans, it's going to be lower because Democrats and independents are going to say no, because they are unfavorable toward Trump or most of them. Many of them are unfavorable toward Trump.
0: Well, final piece on Trump. Uh, while we're talking about 2016, uh, the I'm sure many of our listeners know of Frank Luntz, uh, Republican Uber pollster extraordinaire, um, and he he's very famous for doing focus groups where. Uh, that are very entertaining. He himself is, is an entertainer. Um, he's had many a public polling spat with Donald Trump. Oh, if only we here at the pollsters could have a public polling spat with Donald Trump. <laughs> I know, right? We're gonna have to keep our our IPR mentions. Uh, that would that would get ugly pretty mm-hmm. fast. Um, but he, so Frank Luntz. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll notice that he very often will tweet. If you ever want to be in one of my focus groups, click here. You can sign up, um, which is a little unorthodox. Most of the time, when you are recruiting for focus. Focus groups. You work with a local focus group vendor who has a database of people who have, you know been at least minimally vetted, and um, you know you try not to get people that do focus groups all the time. You don't want professional focus group respondents, right. but there is some level of you know the facility knows how often these people do the groups, et cetera, et cetera. They have them in to do focus groups about like potato chips and car insurance and stuff, and so it's not all politics, right?
1: But so Frank Luntz,
0: part of what he does is he recruits himself. Via Twitter, hey, right. if you want to join my focus
1: group, you can. And I've never seen anybody else do that, at least not political folks. I mean, someone may do that in a local market, but I've never seen anyone do that in politics. Right. so it's
0: it, so it's it's an unorthodox methodology for sure. and it has now led to a very um amusing controversy. Margie, tell us what happened.
1: So, well, this was done for Face the Nation on CBS, their Sunday morning news show. And the group was held in Alexandria, Virginia, which, by the way, is where we are right now. That's where where we currently are.
0: Coming to you live from inside the beltway. Exactly. Exactly.
1: (laughs) But it's not, you know, the first piece of this is it's not really known. Alexandria, Virginia is not a... Early primary primary voting area, it's probably, you know, where most – it's pretty easy to find a political operative. Let's just put it that way. So it's not hard to predict an outcome where Luntz is – promoting his groups online, somebody says, hey, I'd like to do that, who is part of the political community in some way, since a lot of people here are part of the political community. It's a company town. Um, so that's what happened. So somebody who was a former Romney staffer who also worked at the Heritage Foundation, um, both you know, part of the political community, said, yeah, I'd like to do that, volunteered, lied through the screener, was part of a televised focus group, challenged the group, Um, And then wrote about it in the Daily Beast or was part of a story about it in the Daily Beast. And then now, you know, once in on the joke, you know, it's part of the coverage now, too, and then tweeted out. Hey, be in my focus group. Make <laughs> you it could make you famous. So he's using this now as a way to continue to uh, to recruit folks online through his Twitter account. So, um you know, the moral of the story is, I guess, a few things. I mean, is that a good way to recruit participants? What do you do when a focus group participant goes rogue? Um, <laughs> it can happen even if you don't, even if you take all the precautions possible. Especially if there are cameras there. Yeah. And especially if you're talking about politics. I mean, I remember one of the first focus groups I was ever a part of as a consultant 20 some odd years ago. One of the participants went to a major magazine after the fact. And basically, like her complaint was, the moderator told me, you know, I was being too noisy. I had to be quiet and wait my turn. Like that was her complaint. I mean, it wasn't even that, you know, the subject matter. She was just a little worked up over having been told hold on, I want to hear from somebody else, (laughs) which is what you have to do as a moderator. So it can really happen for any reason at any time. But this story is pretty funny because it kind of exposes, well, what happens if you do a group in D.C. and you advertise it online and it's easy for people to figure out what you're going to do?
0: In the coverage of this, uh, the the man who went into the focus group as a participant, he sort of says that he was trying – he wanted to – he himself wanted to see – What are Trump supporters like? Like he wanted to talk to them in person. He kind of wanted to go be a participant because he wanted to understand the findings himself as well. So if you can't sit behind the glass, you may as well get paid 100 bucks to sit on, in front of the glass, right? Uh, and you know, walked away from it with the sense of like, "Wow, Trump supporters are are for real. This isn't just you know a phantom of the polls. These people are committed." And right. um, and and I think Luntz's response was, you know, to this whole kerfuffle was was pretty fun because he tweeted out something like, uh, "You know, hey, come be in my focus groups. They're fun, and you can get famous."
1: <laughs> Right. I know. And oh, we should name the guy since now he's vaguely famous, or at least for the afternoon, Michael Willie, And he, he he knew who you are. He said he was a fan of yours, Kristen. And what was, you know, the other thing that was funny is he said, and this is the thing that I think is particularly controversial. I hope Trump wins. So, the you know, the wins the nomination. So he can lose in the general and then the Republican Party will be forced to confront itself. Somehow. I have heard
0: this theory, uh, Jokingly, the, the the kill the host theory that that the the party's problems are so severe that the only way for the Republican Party to really, like, go to rehab is that we have to hit rock bottom first. Um, but I'm not sure that a Trump nomination or say a Ted Cruz nomination actually, you know, leads to that outcome because. So we can talk for just a second about these general election polls. NBC Wall Street Journal just put out a whole bunch of different matchups. Hillary Clinton versus Ted Cruz versus Donald Trump versus Marco Rubio versus um, Ben Carson. I don't think they did a Clinton-Bush matchup. That's where we're at in this race. Wow, that's not news. even doing okay. So, but but the the results were different based on who you matched Hillary Clinton against. If you matched her against Ben Carson, pretty close race. Even though Carson's been fading in the GOP primary, his favorables are still pretty good. Um, Marco Rubio, I think, was ahead of Clinton by three. I think forty eight forty five national general election against Cruz, Clinton wins and by I think a five point margin. And then against Trump. She wins by a 10-point margin. So Trump and Cruz, who are atop the polls in the GOP primary, are also the weakest in a general election. But losing 40 to 50 nationwide doesn't mean that you would have a – Ted Cruz is not looking at like a Mondale 1984 national wipeout. Like it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around any Republican nominee who loses Alabama – Mississippi, like you can name a bunch of different red right. states. They're like Hillary Clinton's not going to win Utah. It's not going to happen. Um, of course, maybe maybe that will happen, and you can excerpt this and be like, "Look at what a <laughs> moron Kristen was." But uh, As while right I, now, while I am sympathetic, true. you know, I, while I understand his point of view that he kind of wants Trump to win so that it will be like a everything burn it all the ground and start over. I don't actually think that that would happen, even if you nominated a Ted Cruz or a Donald Trump. And you would still have they would then have the argument, well, the establishment abandoned me. I would have won if the establishment hadn't abandoned me. So there's there's really I don't actually think that a, a like a burning the house down loss is going to happen. I think Republicans have an uphill battle to win the White House. I don't think that they are favored at this moment, but I don't think they're going to lose as badly no matter who we nominate. Enough to have like that true moment of reckoning that I think he thinks
1: is possible. Yeah, and the sort of we're gonna win by losing strategy is. I mean, Democrats say that sometimes too after the wave. Like
0: election. Republicans, I, I we should win. We should try to win the White House. Yeah, like, I don't putting think... my red hat on for like fifteen seconds. Let's try to win, we'll actually. Try to win by
1: winning first. And then <laughs> we can discuss. Let's make that plan by... <laughs> A. Let's make that plan A. As opposed to starting before any voting happens to win by losing. All right. Starting, happens, losing All right.
0: Republican hat back off. So, 15 seconds of that. Yeah, yeah right. no.
1: Fair <laughs> enough. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, so, you know, and there's some other data recently in the last week, too, just to close out on 2016 about why these matchups may be where they are. And I, I think maybe could shed some light is this notion of likability. So I spoke at a Politico Women Rule event. Last week, and one of the first questions was about likability. So I was on the panel, and there was someone from Clinton's office, and some Clinton's campaign, and someone from Fiorina's campaign, and Nicole Wallace, and someone from the DSCC, one of the Democratic Party committees. And we had this question of likability Do we focus too much on the likability of Clinton or Fiorina? Do women candidates? Have to answer this: Are they likable enough? Question, and I said at the time, well, there's not a lot of polling publicly about likability, and you know we do spend too much time focusing on women candidates. No one seems to really worry. No one worried very much if Scott Walker seemed likable or if Ted Cruz seemed likable. But ultimately, voters do care about likability because they are voting for the person, they're not voting for a list of policy positions. And then by the end of the day, again, this is how quickly polling changes. There was actually polling about likability that came out that day and the day I did this panel that showed um that, in fact, likability was the lowest it was the least important thing that people said they were looking for. Now I think people underreport their desire for someone likable because they don't want to think that that matters to them. They want to look at competence first. But people do want that that cue as to whether or not someone likes them. They can, you know people want that. That's when human nature. Um But then the poll on this was APGFK. The poll then also did likability ratings for all the top candidates. And wouldn't you know that Clinton was one of them? She was tied for most likable with Ben Carson. And that perhaps explains why there's such a more even matchup in the Wall Street Journal NBC poll. And the least likable. Candidates were the two Republican candidates at the top of the primary field right now, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, who were overwhelmingly not likable. Now, I should say, none of the candidates were seen as more likable than not. They were all seen as more unlikable. But Clinton. Which is
0: why Queen Amadala's fave and faves are looking pretty good right now, aren't <laughs> that's they? That's right.
1: That's right. <laughs> so Clinton was 40 54, likable, unlikable. Carson, 40 55. That's basically the same. Then Sanders, Rubio, and Bush were kind of comparable, more or less. And then Cruz was 27% likable, say he's likable. 62% say he's unlikable. Trump, 24-71. This is national of everybody. So, you know, that probably explains why they're not doing well in the general. It doesn't quite explain, though, why... They're not, you know, maybe Republican primary voters really mean what they say when they say they don't care about likability because it then seems a little odd that the least likable folks are at the top of the primary field.
0: They appear to not care about likability or electability this cycle. That Those are those are not atop their list of priorities. Uh, the, the things that Republican primary voters are looking for, they're looking for strength, decisiveness, honesty interesting that honesty and likability are separate and have very, very sort of different reactions. Um, in this poll of, uh, of Iowa primary voters, they were asked, you know, about different uh, different characteristics, you know, which is most important to you. Um, or pardon me, this is, this is the AP poll. Um, how important is each of the following candidates uh, for you, qualities for you in a candidate for president? 86 um, percent of people say that honesty is extremely or very important, but likability, only 54 percent. So those are very, those are There's a big gap in in those numbers. You can believe someone's honest but also kind of a jerk, but that's okay. Doesn't that explain so much
1: (laughs) about this primary? So... Um, so next we're going to go to our occasional segment of Ask a Millennial. And we just happen to have one right here, and that's Kristen. Hello. <laughs> we don't have to go very far. Author of The Selfie Vote, available where all books about millennials are sold. Um, so two questions. So the first one, what do millennials think about Americans and more specifically about the American dream? Kristen?
0: We know that millennials are not necessarily big fans of uh their own generation. Um, Pew put out some data a couple of months ago, asking millennials to describe the millennial generation in a handful of ways. And and I just have to say, only forty percent of people who are technically millennials even identify with the term. So they they start off with a pretty negative view of their own generation. But they were the least likely to say that their own generation was were things like patriotic, hardworking. Um, more most likely to attribute sort of things like laziness to their own generation. Um, but then they asked uh, broadly, uh, do you Think that lazy describes the typical American very or fairly well. And millennials were the most likely to say that the typical American, so this isn't just about their own generation, this is the country as a whole. 63% of millennials. Think Americans are lazy compared to only 45 percent of those in the Silent Generation, which is those kind of 70 and up, um, and only 42 percent of Boomers think that the average American is lazy. So big difference there. Millennials, much much less faith in the work ethic of their own country. Um, and and you also have this question. So the the Harvard Institute of Politics does a poll every year. Love the Harvard IOP poll. Always gives me good data about what millennials are thinking. Um, their data is a little. A little bit older because they kind of take a while after they do the survey to have students work on putting together what do the results mean and all of that. So, uh, but but some of the results sort of do have some staying power. And one of the big findings was that nearly half of young Americans believe the American dream is dead for them. They said, "Do you believe the American dream is alive or dead for them personally?" Respondents were evenly split. Forty-nine um, percent said the American dream is alive. Forty-eight percent said the American dream is dead. There was no significant difference found based on race or ethnicity, which I think is important, Um, but level of education played a role. If you're a college graduate, they were more likely to say the American dream is alive if they did not go to college or never enrolled. Um, then only 42 percent of the American dream um, was was dead for them or 42 percent said the American dream was alive. Uh, and a majority of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump supporters said they believed the American dream was dead. The sort of frustration with the status quo pushing people to Trump or Sanders among young voters. Yeah. So.
1: I know that's pretty. That's pretty interesting and pretty strong way to phrase it. Is Alive
0: that, or dead for yeah. you
1: personally? I mean, that's a pretty.
0: Well, the the other thing that I've seen when I've done focus groups is that the American dream is a concept that doesn't have a concrete definition anymore. Like, the, time and again, I will hear millennial focus group respondents say that you know the American dream used to be. White picket fence, 2.5 kids, cute dog, you know, that that was the American dream and that that's – not only is that unattainable for many millennials, but it's also not even something they necessarily want. They build their families in different ways. They're less likely to buy homes. It's hard for them to even save up enough to buy a home if they wanted to. So they're sort of redefining the American dream
1: at the same time. Hmm, Right, right. Maybe deliberately rejecting it because it's something that their parents are maybe pushing them into. So I have another question for our Ask a Millennial segment. So let's say we're doing the podcast, which would be great. Maybe we will be 10 years from now. And we're not doing ask a millennial anymore, because millennials will be old news. We're gonna be doing ask a blank, whatever comes after millennial. What word do you think we'll use?
0: MTV has tried to answer this question <laughs> and I am not crazy about the answer they came up with. So MTV has um they've they did a nationwide study to try to figure out what the uh that what the next generation, the post millennial generation, will be called. And what they've settled on is the term the founders, um, because they, they paint the, the picture of this generation as as sort of being in charge of founding the new world. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know about this. So, that they're it's called the founders. Um, they are this MTV did a survey of more than a thousand respondents, and it's all people born after the year 2000. These are all people born in this current millennium, and uh, that. You know, we we all we've also talked before about how the millennial definition is pretty broad. It's people born in the eighties and nineties, which is like there are big differences between someone born in nineteen eighty one and someone born in nineteen ninety nine. Right. The main thing that holds them all together is that they're people who are born where it's hard to remember life before the internet. Um but the, I mean, but that's basically the the thread that kind of ties someone to get, ties together people who are, you know, 17 years old and somebody who's like approaching 35. Um, but yeah, the founders, because they, they sort of believe that while millennials are these dreamers and, and you know, really optimistic and have been told their whole life that they're special by the indulgent baby boomers and, you know, they're living to disrupt and challenge established norms that instead they say the founders are kind of more pragmatic, um, that they they've are sort of navigating a tougher world, Um, they say that they considered other names, the bridge generation, the builder generation, the regenerator generation. I'm not crazy about any of those. I mean, I'm certainly not crazy about the founders. I
1: know, and I think it kind of went did a little. Like, bit Like, did of we a,
0: colonize another planet, or uh, you know, I they mean, say, maybe we will be soon. They say
1: looking at the difference between the Sims as a game of millennials versus Minecraft, or whoever these kids are. I mean, the Sims uh, is awesome, by the way. <laughs>
0: Oh, God. Now I'm going to go home and play tonight. No, The Sims oh, there goes my evening.
1: definitely is fun. <laughs> I didn't even think of that as necessarily millennials. I saw – you know, I would think that that's been around before millennials. But anyway, that I don't mean to digress. The point is, is it a little bit too cute by half to try to ask these r- voters or these young people to define themselves now? I mean as opposed to kind of waiting to see how a name evolves based on the character, right? I mean it just seems a little bit too – too clever, like, okay, go, name yourself. And based on what? And it just, I think, emphasizes a little bit this whole desire we all have to wrap up these different groups into cute names and give them a label and say, okay, you're the blank. And I say that having done that. Right. And we do that. We're part of that. And it's a shorthand that's helpful at times. But maybe it's a little bit premature for these folks. I guess that's my point.
0: Well, the the other thing that I will take a little bit of issue with in this write up is that MTV's uh, surveys, they, they they say that the millennial celebrity icon is Miley Cyrus, who pushed back against Disney's model of fame um, and that the defining movie of the millennial generation is high school Musical. I'm sorry. Number one, has anybody here seen Mean Girls? Because it is such a better defining (laughs) movie for this generation. True. Uh, Number two, Miley Cyrus? No. I mean, I would say somebody like Taylor Swift. If if you want to go with somebody who's grown famous because they have cultivated – an online following, like, but my God, Miley Cyrus, no. And, but then they say that for, um, for the founders, that their celebrities will not necessarily be celebrities in the traditional, like, artists in the way that we think of them, but rather um, heroes like YouTube stars and Vine comedians, ordinary folks finding fame in the democratic moray of the World Wide Web. Well, I mean,
1: that's millennials
0: know. get a lot of grief, but do not give us. Miley Cyrus is our like shining North Star. Please no. <laughs> There's a line. There's a line after which I have to defend my generation. And so
1: you want to claim YouTube stars as your own then?
0: <laughs> I mean I'll take Taylor Swift. Okay. I'll I'll take her. That's I can make an I can make an argument to you of why Taylor Swift represents many of the different values and like I, I could I can write that piece. I can right. write those eight hundred words. Yeah. Miley Cyrus, this is just, it's making me mad. Okay.
1: All right. Well, I need
0: to talk about Adele and Justin Bieber again. I I need to go back. I guess you're
1: demonstrating that, you know, it's too (laughs) simplistic to just say. They
0: didn't poll me, Margie. (laughs) This poll is invalid because they didn't poll
1: me. (laughs) I sense a Twitter fight is brewing. (laughs) Kristen versus MTV. So the holidays are coming up, and we have a variety of things in store at the pollsters. For one, we're going to release an interview with... Washington DC institution, Charlie Cook, so that'll be coming. We just recorded and it is a great interview. It's like so our if, holiday gift to you all. Exactly. His holiday gift to us and our holiday gift to you. Um and also we have a little a little story, a little poll that came out from career builders about what kind of crazy gifts have you received at the office? And this list is incredible, right? A squirrel, toilet seat decal, a pair of Christmas socks that look like elf feet, a roll of duct tape. That makes no sense. That's really um, useful,
0: though. Yeah, but it's not really a gift. What can gift. you not do with a roll of duct tape?
1: But it's not really, you know, it's not really a gift. A picture of a bear, a bowling ball. I guess that's not bad, a bowling ball. A, a homemade sausage, um, a mystery bag with a coat in it. That that doesn't make—Valentine's uh, Day candy, that's a pretty bad one. That, ooh. A ceramic ooh. sheep you can dress up. <laughs> I don't even know. I can't even really envision that. (laughs) These are like the kinds of things like my daughter would come up with as like a present. Um, These are not things that you want to give at work. But about 20% of folks say that they plan to buy holiday gifts for coworkers uh, or or the boss. Um, That's kind of a lot. Um, But, you know, and they expect to spend no more than $25. That seems reasonable. I I feel
0: like buying a gift for your boss is a fraught proposition. I feel like if you're the boss, you should buy yes. gifts for your staff. But yes. like, I don't feel like the obligation should go the other way. Yes. That's
1: too much pressure. Yeah, it's too much I've pressure. I've done it
0: before, but that, it's stressful. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I'm, I, Although I, I got to say, I'm looking at this list of, of unusual gifts and picture of a bear really <laughs> sticks out with me because there, are, there are different ways that could go. That could be a good gift depending on what kind of Bear?
1: <laughs> What's the bear doing? What's the Is bear scary? <laughs>
0: doing? I don't know. They're...
1: Do you like bears? There
0: are lots of ways this one can go.
1: So in honor of the pollsters being like, you know, at least for the week, sort of a thing, I actually got something for Kristen. All right. So here I should back up a second to say, and it's a DC kind of thing to have, like when you go to do like a TV, used to be a thing, you get a mug, right? And it's a whole thing when you go on <laughs> TV on set, they'll give you a mug with the show name. But now times are tight. You can't take the mug with you anymore, right? You can't take – it used to be you could take the mug and you would have like offices with all the mugs from all the various shows. You can't do that. People are tightening their belts. And I was at this Politico event and they had tons of mugs from – that said women rule on it. I was like, oh, this is great. This is like a real treat because they had actual mugs because it's a hotel. So there were real mugs. You didn't need the mugs to drink because they had actual mugs there. I'm like, what a treat. We were all talking about what a treat it was to have mugs. I went to take it. I'm like, I could take this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you can take it. I'm like, oh no, and I'm like a stingy, like, <laughs> like mug stealer. I read the whole situation wrong. Anyway, so now that we're like emerging as a little bit of a fringy, less fringy media property, I did get Kristen and they, I didn't bring them oh with me gosh. because I didn't plan properly. <gasps> but I have a picture of what it looks like. So here's a picture of the one I stole. And there is a picture. I just taped the thing onto the mug. Yes. And so, Kristen, what does your mug say?
0: Greetings from Tacoma. (laughs) Living on the edge. We are always talking about Margie's adventures in the Tacoma Park neighborhood of Maryland just outside of D.C.
1: Yes. So next time we meet, we will actually have the mugs. So now we will be official like media properties with our own mugs. We don't have someone to like constantly fill it with water or put a little straw in it for us. We don't have any of that stuff, but we are getting there. <laughs> so the first step is a mug. Period. I like it. I like it. All right. Excellent. So our key findings this week. Um, Still not sure likability matters in your 2016 vote, but we're glad you like the pollsters. Uh, Your relatives will most likely be talking about Trump and Cruz and the Muslim ban over the holidays. Uh, We asked a millennial about whether Americans are lazy, and she said no. Place, case closed <laughs> and this holiday don't buy your co-worker a sheep or a roll of toi- or a roll of not certainly not toilet paper or of duct tape but maybe you should get them a photo of a bear perhaps <laughs> only a cool one only a cool one <laughs> you
0: can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters you can find Margie at, at Margie O'Meara. I'm at Kay soltis Anderson you can find us at thepolsters.com and on Facebook at facebook.com the polsters, where throughout the week we will post links to the various stories we think are interesting and maybe talking about on the week's upcoming show. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, whichever your favorite podcatcher is. And also, please don't forget to write a review if you haven't done so yet, and especially if you happen to like our show.
1: Great. Thank you.